Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. Today we're finishing our series through prayer, and I'm so excited uh, to be closing that out with you the, the last few weeks. If you remember, just a quick recap, the first week we talked about our the, the purpose of prayer, and then the second week we talked about posture of prayer, must be why I'm talking about that, and then this week now we're talking about persistence in prayer, which is such a difficult subject in my opinion. Maybe you can relate to me. Maybe, maybe somebody in this room or several in this room have been in a season of praying for something for some time and you're kind of running out of gas, running out of hope. Like I've been praying for this for years and I'm still praying, but some days I'm having a hard time persisting in prayer. But we see the Bible encourages us throughout to be persistent in prayer. So as we studied about the purpose of prayer and the posture of prayer, and we saw that the purpose is to commune and to have fellowship with God, and we saw that our posture in prayer needed, needs to be humble and, and weak before the one who is strong. And Pastor Brian told us that the enemy knows that prayer is his undoing. So we employ it as a weapon against the enemy, but also as a weapon for us. But sometimes, if we're honest, it's difficult to be persistent in it. And my goal today is to help you keep going. That's the goal from the top. The the goal is to help you and encourage you to keep going in prayer, to, to persist in prayer. Whether you're praying for yourself, whether you're praying for others, whether you're praying for healing or deliverance from something or whether you're giving thanks or confessing sin or maybe you're worshiping in this season or maybe you're crying out for God to do the miraculous. I want to encourage you today to be persistent. And I'm going to show you in scripture a few examples of persistence in prayer. And then we're going to land on one really big example that I'm excited to unpack for you But the first couple examples I want to show you briefly here from the top is Paul and Jesus. They both teach us to be persistent in prayer. The first one is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Maybe you're familiar with with this passage of Scripture. Paul cries out to the Lord three times for him to take away a thorn that was in his flesh. And look at verse 9. Look at what God said to Paul after he pled with him three times. Take away the thorn that's in my flesh. We don't know what the thorn is, but we know that we all have some sort of thorn maybe that we've pled for to be removed. And three times Paul did it. He was persistent. And look at what God said. Look at how God answered him in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But God said to me, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient 
for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So God didn't reach down and remove the thorn. Like Paul might have said back, that's not what I was asking, you know? Like I wanted it gone. But God says, no, no, no. Let me rearrange your perspective for a moment. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is actually made perfect in your weakness. And then look at Paul's perspective changing right here in the end of verse nine. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Like, I learned this lesson. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, his strength is made perfect. His power is made perfect in my weakness, and I am then made strong. Paul learned this lesson through persistence in prayer. Jesus also teaches us persistence in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three of the gospel accounts give us a, a, a version of this scene that's very similar, but this morning I'm gonna look at Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew's account of this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, it'll be on the screen, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. But he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that was James and, and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Son of God began to be sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me, James, John, and Peter. Remain here. And watch with me. And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? The cup is of God's wrath that Jesus is about to drink down in full when he goes to the cross. Can you take this punishment from me? If it's possible for the world to be loved through me, if it's possible for your children to be saved through my sacrifice without me drinking this cup, will you take it from me? And he came to the disciples after he prayed this and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me even one hour? Could you not just watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I really thought as I was preparing this this week, I really thought about just staying right there and talking about how persistence in prayer leads us away and able to conquer temptation. But I'm not gonna do that. So I just wanna tell you that, that you could do that right there. Like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what does Jesus tell Peter to do because of that fact? He said, stay here and pray that you may not enter temptation. Watch and pray 
See, what do we do when we're in temptation? We focus our attention on God. What do we do when we're being tempted in our room at night? We turn our attention to God. We focus on him. We totally become enthralled with his glory. We watch and we pray. We have fellowship with him. We don't stay in the temptation. We run to the one who is worthy of our affection. That's the quick sermon of what I was about to do. I'm not gonna do it. So then we're gonna keep moving in verse 42. I just thought that was helpful though. Again, for the second time, look at this, Jesus, for the second time, he went away and prayed to the Father, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prays the same thing the second time. After he goes and sees his disciples being lazy, he, came, he comes back in a time of great sorrow and he prays the same thing a second time. And he doesn't elaborate. I think that's important. And look at verse 43. And again, Jesus came and found them sleeping. Are you listening? For their eyes were heavy. Well, yeah. But the Son of God just told you to watch and pray. You know, I'm right there with Peter. I would have probably done the same thing. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. But So then verse 44. So leaving them again. Maybe you like to take notes in your Bible. I would underline again. I would underline again there, and I would underline again in verse 42, just to remind yourself of Jesus's persistence. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Underline that one too. For the third time, he prayed the same words again. In Luke's account of this same scene, Luke 22, it, it talks about Jesus being so earnest and fervent in prayer that he was sweating blood. You know this account. He was, he was in such agony and he was so earnest in his prayer. He was persisting so much that he was, he was literally sweating blood out of his brow. Jesus persisted in prayer. What's the key? What, what is the key for our persistence in prayer? What can we learn from Paul? What can we learn from Jesus? What can we learn from everyone else in the Bible that persisted in prayer? What can we learn from the people in our lives that persisted in prayer? That's, that's what we're going to, to unpack today as I continue in this sermon, but I'm going to give you the thesis from the top of this whole thing. What's the key? We will be persistent in prayer when we trust in God's word. That's the key. We will be persistent in prayer when we trust in God's word or God's promises. What God has spoken that will be fulfilled. Trusting in the promises of God is the key to persistence in prayer. Some of you remember that old hymn. It just keep, As I was studying this week, I kept thinking, standing on the promises of Christ my King. I can't remember the rest. But then it gets to the chorus of standing, standing. You know what I'm talking about? 
every time when I was a kid and we would do that and I would be there and I would just wait for it because I couldn't wait for those older men who had their, you know, and I'm like, and then every time they would bellow it, I'd be, whoa, like, that still scares me every time. Standing, standing. You know the song, yeah? Okay, I was the only one singing, so I didn't know. (laughs) Trusting the promises of God. Standing on the promises of God is the key to persistence in prayer. Many times the greatest act of obedience is simply trusting. Many times, most times, if I can say so, The greatest act of obedience is not doing something miraculous, but it's actually just trusting, standing. Now, what do we trust in? We don't just trust in the wind. No, 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 no. We have truth. We have the promises of God, the revealed word of God. That's why they were bellowing with all their chest. We're standing on the promises of God of Christ, my King. And there's this verse, I wrote it down from that song, standing on the promises, I cannot fail, listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Oh, I messed that up already. You already knew. It's it's not fail, it's fall, because it rhymes. We'll go back again and try it again. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior as my all in all all standing on the promises of God. What's the key to persistence in prayer? Standing on the promises of God, hearing the word, trusting that it's true, even when it's not yet reality for you. Standing on the promises of God while you wait. That's where you find a depth of faith that you can't explain. And God has much to say in his word about waiting for him, standing on the promises of God, waiting on the Lord. I just grabbed a few of my favorites. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. So blessed are all those who wait for him. Micah 7, verse 7. But as for me, Micah said, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. By the way, future tense implies that he may not currently be sure that he's hearing him, but he is trusting that he will. Just a little, I'll come back to that maybe. I'll come back to that. Psalm 27, 14, this is a Psalm of David. Actually, 13 and 14 is what I wanna read to you. I believe that I shall look upon the greatness of the Lord in the land of the living, David said. I believe it. I may not see it, but I believe it. And look at verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why are you yelling, Jared? Because he was, he put an exclamation point. Wait. I think he was shouting it. Why does that matter? 
Because even David needed to shout it to his soul sometimes. Wait, David, believe what you know is true, but sometimes it gets a little foggy. Wait. Look, sometimes maybe we'd do some good if we took a little time in the closet while we were praying, first of all, to have a closet to pray in, and then when we get in the closet to shout to our soul that we should be waiting. But not just any kind of waiting. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 38, 15 of David. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you Oh, Lord, my God, who will answer. This one didn't have an exclamation point. I can't be sure how he was delivering it. I'm just reading it for what it is. But what I can be sure of is he used that word will for a purpose. And it tells us that God may not have been doing it real plainly in front of his eyes right then. But he trusted in the promises of God. He was standing on the promises of God. And he said in that verse, oh, Lord, my God, you will answer. David's confidence I just want you to see David's confidence required faith too. Because sometimes we can read the Bible and we can think these people are just way above us. Way more spiritual. No, it required faith too. It required him to believe when he couldn't see. He was standing on the promises of God. Psalm 40 verse 1. This one's of David too. This is one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined and heard my cry. That word inclined, I looked it up in the original language. It's, it's used to mean stretch or to extend, to, to spread out, to, to bend. Another usage of that word is bend. And I love that one because God bends down to hear the cry of his children. He stretches for it. He bends, he, he reaches to hear the prayers of his children. Like a father who kneels down beside his child just to hear her say what she's trying to say to him. He inclined and heard my cry. I want to stay there for a little longer and unpack that, but we can't because we got to move. He inclined and heard my cry. Okay, but, but Jared, I've been praying for years. I've had this list, and at the top of the list is that person's salvation for 20 years. I, I've, got this, I've been praying for my son to come back. I've been praying for healing in my body for years and years and years and years and years. I've been asking God to free me from doubt. I've been trying to hear God speak and, and sense his presence for a long time. And I, I'm starting to, to lose hope. Maybe it's you today. Maybe you have been persistent, but you're running out of patience. Let's all be honest for a second. Sometimes it may seem and feel like God is reluctant to answer our prayers. It may feel like that, like, if he hears them, 
like the Bible says, then maybe he's just reluctant to answer them. Maybe, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe he's not listening to me. And then we write songs like, it's, it's, uh, actually, I like that song, so I'm not gonna make fun of it, actually. Let's just keep moving. I don't even remember who it is. It's uh, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered. Who is that? Garth Brooks. Come on, Jared, get with the program. I was born early enough to know that. I was born in 89, so I was born early enough to know that. It's a good song. I was just saying, sometimes we use songs like that to make sense of the fact that we feel like God is reluctant to answer our prayers. Is that what's happening? Like, I've been praying to you for a long time. And so I wanna submit something for you to consider today. If God chooses to delay, he's not changing his mind He's changing you. If God so chooses to delay, you can write this down, it's on purpose. There is a reason and probably a multitude of reasons that we will never be able to count. But one of those reasons is to change you, like persistence in prayer, this is important. Persistence in prayer is transformational to the one who is praying. I want you to, get, I want you to write it down. Persistence in prayer is transformational to the one who is praying. If for no other reason, but there are other reasons, God is delaying and causing you and maybe forcing you to persist so that he can transform you. When we submit to this difficult process, and it is difficult, I don't, I, don't, I don't deny that, but when we submit to this difficult process, it builds into us the character of God. He's, he's fashioning us. He, he's working. It's one way that he builds into us a heart like his, a heart that cares about the things the same way that he cares about those things. A heart that cares about the people that we're crying out to him for. A heart that cares about the healing of our land. A heart that cares about the 1040 window, the unreached people. It, it, persistence, this difficult process builds in us a character that's more like him. Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of all time, once said, too many prayers are like an impatient boy knocking at the door. By the time it can be opened, the boy's already away from the door. Persistence is staying long enough for the door to be opened. I'm here. I need your help. And I got about five more knocks in me and I'm out. So come on. Ooh, that's all too real. That just got real quiet in here. It's all too real. But persistence is staying long enough for the door to be opened. And when we feel like God is delaying, he's actually forging our faith. Faith is forged in delay. We've seen this time and time again, but will you stay long enough? 
When immediate fulfillment becomes the norm, faith becomes weak. But when persistence is necessary, faith becomes strong. One of the longest uh, established crafts uh, known to civilized man is blacksmithing. And I did just a little bit of research on blacksmithing. And, and I, I, I learned about it this week because I thought about this idea that faith is f- forged in delay. Like God forges us. Like what is that process of, of forging? And I always used to use that word forge as a verb. But what I didn't know is it's also a blacksmithing term that's not only a verb, but it's also a, a noun. It's a forge. Some of you may already know this. It's, it's like the oven. It, it's, the, it, it's, it's where the metal is heated in a forge. And blacksmithing is, is, is old, like really old. We've used it throughout the centuries to melt down and mold and shape metal to a form that's better served for us. Maybe you've seen some medieval movies or, you know, or your, your wife took up metalsmithing for a little while like mine did. And we have a torch in the garage and I almost brought the tools. I may go get those before the 1045. We get, she's got these hammers. She's got these, these mandrels and these punches and chisels and all these things. That I don't know why. We don't ever use them. But she's got all these tools to, 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 to form the metal with. And the thing about the metal is the chisels and the hammers and the anvils and the mandrels and the punches and the drifts and all those tools. You can look them up. Bunch of weird words for tools, but they're all there. All those tools are practically useless without something to hold the heat. Because it has to get up to a certain temperature, depending on the metal, in order for it to melt down just enough to be formed and shaped and developed and fashioned and forged. A forge is basically a hearth consisting of a heat source and an oxygen supply to bring metals up to a certain temperature. Most of the time, they get this forge up to 2,000 or 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very hot. And then the metal comes out blazing red, you know? And then they, they chop on it and they bend it with their tools, not with their hands, and they make it into what they want it to be. But it must get to a certain temperature for it to be able to be shaped. And a blacksmith has to continually, through the process, balance the fuel and the air in a traditional forge that holds that heat while they are working. It's it's not the best blacksmiths don't just get it as hot as they can because then they lose some of the construct and and, and the, the strength of the metal. It just melts all the way down if it gets too hot. So they have to keep a little bit of its shape and a little bit of its properties in there still. So they balance out the heat and the oxygen and they're working with it to make sure that it's not totally blowing away or it's not too, too cold. We know that Jesus was a carpenter when he was on earth, but we also know that he was and is a spiritual blacksmith, forging, 
balancing the heat and the oxygen in our environment to, to make us moldable, to make us pliable, to forge our faith. And we see him putting people, putting his followers, putting us who follow him into a forge and using his tools to fashion us into his image and shaping our faith. And I want to look at this one encounter, this crazy encounter that Jesus had with a Canaanite woman uh, in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to turn there, we're going to spend a little bit of time, and, and I'll give you a chance to, to flip over there. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is where we're going to come to a close after this story, but I'm going to spend a little time on it. This is a crazy story. Matthew 15. This is real. This, isn't a, this is real. It's not a parable. It's real. I still hear pages, but I'm going to let you just kind of catch up. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon was 50 miles almost away from where he was. Well, it's not in the neighborhood. He went there for a reason. And it was a, these were Gentile cities at that, by the way. So they wouldn't, that, that's not normal. That, in those days, that was actually very much not normal. That was not a thing that was done. Jews didn't go to Gentiles. And so not only did he go where they weren't going, but he went 50 miles out of his way to get there. Verse 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, so she's a Canaanite woman. First thing I want you to notice, this is extremely unlikely of an encounter. She's a Gentile. And she's a woman. That's a double doozy in that day. Or, uh, it's like a, a double demotion in that day. And she came out and she was crying. And she said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. A few things about that. Number one, she knew who Jesus was. She said, Lord, son of David. She, she professed who he was. That is no small thing. And then the second thing we see is that her daughter was demon-possessed. Imagine this mother's pain. She comes out crying, like helpless. My daughter, I wonder how long she had been that way. My daughter is possessed by a demon. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. I need your help, and I know who you are. But you notice that she didn't bring her daughter with her to see him. I think that's really profound. He didn't, she didn't bring her daughter to see Jesus. I think this is a peculiar faith. To believe that he didn't even have to be in her presence or to touch her to heal her. To believe that his power was enough to be some distance away and still heal the girl. And still cast out the demon. Like, that's who this is. He is that 
powerful. In her faith, she thinks that his power can heal from afar. What more could he, Jesus, have desired from her? Like, according to most of the other accounts that we see and and the, the stories that we see of Jesus coming into contact with people, as soon as they have faith, it's like, boom. But look at what Jesus did. It's startling what he did. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. He didn't answer her. She came out crying. She's got this, she professed who he was. She's got faith that he can heal. And he didn't answer, he didn't even have a word. He didn't say anything. This is, this is Christ silent to a sufferer's cry. And, and it seems quite contradictory to the rest of the gospel story. Silent. But it's just the first step. This is just the first step of Jesus putting her into the forge. As Augustine says, the word spoke not a word. And it was so unlike him. He who was always so ready with responses to the cry of grief had no response for her at all. So much love in the presence of so much sorrow. That is not what we expected from Jesus. For at least two reasons, he's silent here. Number one, he's obeying his father because he always was. And number two, I think he was putting her in the forge. He was preparing her. He was creating this environment. He was silent for a reason. Verse 23, keep moving. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. We've had enough. We're getting annoyed. Send her away. And at first glance, it looks like they are very heartless with that. Like, just get her out of here. But the, the, the phraseology, the way that this was written, the words that were written in the original language show us that the disciples weren't saying, get rid of her. They were saying, Dismiss her by answering her request. Jesus, do as she says so that she'll go away and she'll stop crying. So, so we got this tension now even with his disciples. Like The disciples are impatient. Jesus knows what he's doing. And of course the mom's impatient. But now his disciples are like, Jesus, just do what she says. We got stuff to do. He's like, no, 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 you're missing it all. I'm 50 miles out of the way for this. Anyway, whoo, I don't have time for all of that. And so he answered, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came in response. She came to that and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. She just, she shrunk it down. The prayer became abbreviated. Isn't it interesting how it, almost like the intenser the feeling, the shorter the prayer, the fewer the words that we have. Like when we're really in pain, when we're really eager for a response, it just, just keeps getting more and more abbreviated. Like we get more to the point. Lord, I just need your help. 
You are the Lord, and I need you to help me. Spurgeon calls this the most useful prayer of them all. Lord, help me. But Jesus came back again with such a cold, seemingly cold reply. He just keeps coming back with these replies that blow my mind. Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The first time I read that, I literally was audible. I like, whoa, whoa. I changed my translation or what's happening? Are you calling her a dog? This was common language in that day. It was common to call the Gentiles dogs, but he used this language little before it on purpose to soften that and, and to make the point that, that this, it was almost as if to say, this dog belonged in the house, but it's still a Gentile. And it's not a child of the promise yet. And he's, testing her further. He, he's just pushing her a little bit further. He, he's, he still has her in the forge and he's cranking up the temperature. She was a Gentile and a woman. She knew it very, very well. He's pushing her a bit further for a purpose. And look at her response immediately in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Wow. Like, I mean, she didn't take offense. She didn't bow up. She didn't run away going to find some other answer. She immediately responded with more faith. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs catch the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I'm here at the table. I know who I am. I'm in line, but I'm at the table and I'm looking for some crumbs from you because all it takes is a crumb. All it takes is a touch of your garment, just the hem. I'm here. Help me. Wow. She responds with this great, great faith. She understood that the focus of his ministry was first to the children of promise, first to the children of Israel. She understood that. But she also knew how powerful he was. And she also knew that he was the Messiah that had been sent, the son of David, the promised Messiah. She admitted her low estate. She didn't debate the issue with Jesus about being called one of these little dogs. It was as if she said, Jesus, I understand that the focus of your ministry is to the Jews and that they have a special place in God's redemptive plan. Yet I also understand that your ministry extends beyond the Jewish people and I want to be a part of that extended blessing. Alexander McLaren, a long time ago, one of my favorite scholars said, the Messiah who comes last in the long series of the kings and prophets can only be authenticated as the world's Messiah by being first the fulfiller of the children of the promises made to the fathers. This was the order. This was to fulfill the word. And it seems really, really, really harsh. But this is how Jesus did it. This is what he did with this Canaanite woman for a reason. And she responded with great faith. And look at verse 28. Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. He takes her out of the forge. He says, your faith is, your faith is great. Be it to you as you 
have desired. And her daughter was healed instantly. Sometimes I wish we could see, I wish Matthew would have like ran down to where their house was and interviewed the family that was around the daughter or something and, and given us more details about what that really meant. Like instantly, like was it, was it just in that very moment and it was just boom, like total transformation. Like I wanna know what that means. Like instantly from far off, all it took was his word standing on the promises of God. All it took was his word. How do we persist in prayer? We trust in the word. Because it doesn't matter where he is in the whole universe. It just takes a word. Whew. Instantly. <laughs> you know, Jesus called her faith great. And this is the only the second time in scripture where he says that about a person. The other time he said it about a Roman centurion, and we see that in Matthew chapter eight, verse 10. The Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant, and, and through that process, Jesus called his faith great. But, but he, he did that. He, he called his faith great to the crowd. He didn't say it to him directly. So this is the only time that we see Jesus say directly to an individual, your faith is great. Great is your faith. What do we see about this great faith in this text? I've got four quick observations, and they're long. I'm sorry. If you take notes, you're probably not going to be able to write them down. But we got a podcast. we got YouTube. we got all kinds of things later. Four observations about her great faith. Her faith was great, number one, because it had been tested so severely. It's hard to think of a greater test than a demon-possessed child. I mean, helpless as a mother. But then to go beyond that, Jesus tested her even further by being seemingly cold to her in response two times. Number two, her faith was great because it concerned a need right in front of her and a real need at that. It seems like we have faith for everything else except for the needs right in front of us sometimes. But she, she had faith for that. Number three, her faith was great because it would not give up. It persisted. Her faith was great because it persisted. She was persistent until she got what she needed from Jesus. And make no mistake, there are other stories in the Bible I could point to to show you. Jacob's one of them where persistence is called for. Verse four, her, uh, verse four, uh, point four, not a verse. Do not let me confuse what I'm telling you with a verse. Point four, her faith was so great that he not only healed her daughter, but he did so instantly. And by the way, she didn't even ask for that instantaneous healing, but he did it instantly. We read nothing else that Jesus did during this time in Tyre and Sidon where he was with her. Seems like he went. Only for that appointment. God will allow circumstances to force persistence in prayer. He will do it. And it's hard and we don't like it most of the time, but he does it. Why? 
to strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith in what? The word of God, the promises of God. You've heard it said, a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. He's testing us for a reason. He's putting us in a forge for a reason. So the message, the, the message, the point of this story that we're looking at is prayer works. So be persistent in it. You can trust that when you're standing on his word, prayer works. And how do we remain persistent in prayer? We trust in the promises of God. James gives us an all-time example. This is the last thing I'm gonna give you today. In James 5, 17 through 18, he gives us an all-time, all-time example of what we're talking about here. Verse 16, the verse before says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer works, so be persistent in it. James tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he gives us an example, Elijah, verse 17 of James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, verse 18, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah did exactly what James describes here. This really happened. It's like, why did he pray for rain not to fall? Well, we see in Deuteronomy 28, if we had time, I'd go there, but God prophesied that there would be drought on the land. Elijah knew that as the prophet of God. He knew that there would be drought on the land, and he was proclaiming God's word and, and persisting in prayer when he would ask God to do what he said he was going to do. We can find this whole story in 1 Kings 17 and 18. If you have time, go to it later and read it where, where Elijah prayed for rain to stop and then prayed for rain to come. And, and, and we see here that he was a spokesperson for this prophecy that God had already delivered in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And there's this epic scene in, in 1 Kings 18, one of the most epic in the Bible where, where God proves his power over all the prophets of Baal. And they're all standing there on the altar and they're all, all these other false gods are trying to prove their power and they fail. And then Elijah comes in and, and God really wrecks the place. You can read about that later in 1 Kings 18. But then after all this happens, Elijah goes up to the mountain to pray for rain because it had been a drought for three and a half years and the time had completed that the word said would happen. And so he goes up to the mountain and Elijah, verse 41, said to Ahab, 1 Kings 18, verse 41, go up, eat and drink for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. Now, you just get the picture. There's three and a half years, there ain't been no kind of sound of rain. And at this point, it wasn't raining. It hadn't been raining, and it's not raining. And Elijah's saying, he's hearing the rain. And Ahab is like, you're crazy. 
Ooh, I wish I had some time because faith had been forged and for him to say, I hear the sound of that rain coming. I don't have time. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, just like he said. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked. The servant went up and looked and, and, he, and, he, and he said, there is nothing. There's nothing, Elijah. I don't see anything. I know you said you heard it. We've been walking for a while. Now we're at the top of the mountain and we can't even see it. And Elijah said, go again. Seven times. Go again. You remember when I had you underline again? I'd like for you to do that again here. Go again. Seven times. Be persistent. Seven times. And at the seventh time, verse 44, behold, a little cloud, this little one, like a man's hand, <laughs> is rising from the sea. Just a little one. Just a little cloud, three and a half years later. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And Ahab must have been looking like, that's gonna stop me? The man's hand? Go on, Elijah can't, he's giddy. It's coming, it's gonna come. God said it, it's gonna happen. I'm standing on the promise. Sorry. In verse 45, a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. How, yeah, yeah. How long was a little while? Oh no, might've been a long time. He didn't describe how long a little while was like he described how little that first cloud was, man's hand. But after a little while, the skies grew black, clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Unbelievable. What's our first reaction to this? Unbelievable what God did through Elijah. Unbelievable that servant Elijah, he had great faith. Look at that man's faith. He's unbelievable. Wow, what a hero. But as unbelievable as it was, that's not the point. The point is at the top of James chapter five, verse 17, put it back up on the screen really quick. James chapter five, verse 17, Elijah had a nature just like ours. A nature just like ours. There it is. Verse 17, a nature just like ours. James is reminding us that we have access to God just like Elijah did. James is reminding us that Elijah wasn't some great hero that's out of reach. He had a nature just like ours. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Hello, our role is to submit to him persistently in prayer and to watch his power come through that. He had a nature just like ours. Don't get too far ahead of yourself thinking that you can't do that too. James uses Elijah's praying as an example, not because of the miracles that it produced, but instead to give us a clear illustration of what it looks like to pray with faith 
Every Christian has the revealed word of God. We can stand on it. We can take hold of his covenant commitment to it. And we can ask him to keep it. This is what you said. And then we can watch him prove his power. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. The last thing I want to say to you. So Jared, who's the righteous person? Okay, the power comes when the righteous person prays. That ain't me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I want to submit to you today very clearly with the time that I have left. It's already off the clock. The righteous man here is not faultless. The righteous man here is not perfect. The righteous man here in this text that he's talking about is adopted a child of God, because of Jesus's righteousness. It's believing, not doing. So the righteous person here is the one who is in Christ, the righteous one. Second Corinthians 5, 21, don't take my word for it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness has been given to you and grafted in you. It's not something that you do. It's something that he did. So for all those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, his death, his burial, his resurrection, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So as we close today, this altar is going to be open. Maybe you need to persist in prayer for a little while. Maybe you need to draw close to the Lord's table. Maybe you need to ask him just for a crumb. <laughs> Maybe you need to reach up for his garment. Maybe you need to pick back up that prayer that you haven't been praying for a couple years because you ran out of hope. He's here and he's faithful to his word. We can stand on his promises. If you've never put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, today is the day of salvation. You can do that today. You can call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You can confess with your mouth, repent of your sins and believe that God's raised him from the dead. Believe that he's Lord follow him with your life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. 
Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org. And don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.